Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Walking the Talk, the revolutionary abolitionist Benjamin Lay. Our music throughout comes out of Ned Roram's 1976 composition for organ, A Quaker Reader. This song is Evidence of Things Not Seen. I've chosen Roram to accompany our show as much for his consistent contrarianism in music, in literature and life, as for what he calls his birthright Quakerism. Ned Roram was born in 1923 in Richmond, Indiana. Today, the curious case of Benjamin Lay. Englishman, Quaker, cobbler, sailor, cultural shock firebrand, cave dweller, autodidact, animal liberationist, and outspoken critic of the hypocrisy of slave-owning Quakers in 18th century Pennsylvania. He would become known as one of the last radicals of the English Revolution, an uprising in the mid-17th century against royal power, and an early blossoming of uncensored radical social thought, out of which the radical Quaker movement was born. Born decades after that revolution in 1681 in England, Lay had a relatively easy, quiet life available to him, a farm to inherit in his Quaker community in Essex. But after a trip to Barbados, where he saw the horrors of slavery up close, Benjamin and his wife Sarah became quick converts to abolitionism, and Lay started proselytizing in a radical way, transgressing everyday norms and often creating public scenes in what would now be described as street theater, tactics to shock Quaker slave owners into realizing the horror of the institution they bought into. Our guest via Skype is Marcus Redeker. He's Distinguished Professor of Atlantic History at the University of Pittsburgh. His books have won numerous awards and have been translated into 14 languages. They include The Many-Headed Hydra, the Slave Ship, the Amistad Rebellion, and Outlaws of the Atlantic, among many others. We'll begin with a reading. Here's Marcus Redeker with the opening to his book, The Fearless Benjamin Lay, the Quaker Dwarf Who Became the First Revolutionary Abolitionist. On September 19th, 1738, Benjamin Lay strode into a large gathering of Quakers in the Burlington, New Jersey meeting house for the biggest event of the Philadelphia yearly meeting. Benjamin had journeyed almost 30 miles on foot, as was his way, arriving four days earlier and subsisting on acorns and peaches only. Presiding over the gathering were John Kinsey, clerk of the Philadelphia yearly meeting, and Israel Pemberton Sr., assistant clerk, leaders of the Society of Friends in the Philadelphia region and the Quaker-dominated legislature of Pennsylvania. Benjamin had a message for them and indeed for all of the assembled. Benjamin surveyed the room and took a conspicuous location. He wore a greatcoat, which hid a military uniform and a sword from his fellow Quakers who, back in 1660, had embraced the peace testimony, refusing all weapons and warfare. Beneath his coat, Benjamin carried a hollowed-out book with a secret compartment, 
into which he had tucked a tied-off animal bladder filled with bright red pokeberry juice. Because Quakers had no formal minister, nor church ceremony, people spoke as the spirit moved them. Benjamin, a man of spirit pure and unruly, waited his turn. He finally rose to address this gathering of weighty Quakers, many of whom owned African slaves. Quakers in Pennsylvania and New Jersey had grown rich on Atlantic commerce, and many bought human property. To them, Benjamin delivered a chilling prophecy. He announced in a booming voice that God Almighty respects all peoples equally, rich and poor, men and women, white people and black alike. He explained that the slave-keeping was the greatest sin in the world and asked, how can a people who profess the golden rule keep slaves? He then threw off his great coat, revealing the military garb, the blade, and the book to his astonished co-religionists. A collective murmur filled the hall. In a rising crescendo of emotion, the prophet thundered his judgment. Thus shall God shed the blood of those persons who enslave their fellow creatures. He pulled out the sword, raised the book above his head, and plunged the sword through it. The people in the room gasped as the red liquid gushed down his arm. Several women swooned at the sight. To the shock of all, he spattered blood on the heads and bodies of the slave keepers. Benjamin prophesied a dark, violent future. Quakers who failed to heed the prophet's call must expect physical, moral, and spiritual death. The room exploded into chaos, but Benjamin stood quiet and still, like a statue, remarked Kinsey. Several Quakers quickly surrounded the armed soldier of God, picked him up, and carried him from the building. Benjamin did not resist, but he had made his point. As long as Quakers owned slaves, there would be no business as usual if Benjamin could help it. His brothers and sisters had made peace with the devil, so he used his body to disrupt their hypocritical, pious routines. Mm, that's great, Marcus. Thank you. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our guest is Marcus Redeker, author of the new book, The Fearless Benjamin Lay, the Quaker dwarf who became the first revolutionary abolitionist. Uh, so, uh, when I was reading that, it reminded me. I don't. Uh, I don't know if you read this book, but uh, it's one of my favorites. It's the biography of Emerson by uh, uh, Robert Richardson, and he opens that book with uh, Emerson going to visit the mausoleum of his uh, dead first wife, who had died early, and he was he was young and she was young. She died of tuberculosis, and Emerson goes to to the mausoleum and opens her casket. And uh, Richardson opens his book with that tidbit about, you know, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, the kind of staid, um, you know, cold-seeming philosopher of Concord. And uh, he, of course, uh, also then says he didn't record what he saw that day in his journal. <laughs> but it was <laughs> it's such a, it, like, to me, it's a, it, it offers the same kind of shock um, 
to open a book, it's such a great way to kind of center um, and maybe push readers outside of an expectation, right? Uh, well, with Emerson, there's one that's already there. But part of the issue here is there may not be an expectation of what to expect of, a, of Benjamin Lay. So maybe you could give us a little bit, just a little bit of, of, of who Benjamin Lay was. We'll obviously be filling that in as we go. But, uh, but what should we expect of a character like Benjamin Lay? Benjamin Lay was born in Essex, England in 1682 uh, into a Quaker family. He was a third generation Quaker. He actually stood to inherit a family farmstead, but he turned his back on that, ran away to London where he worked as a sailor for 12 years, uh, acquired a lot of worldly experience. Uh, he then came back to London when he, where he worked as a glover. He got involved uh, once again in Quaker meetings. He caused a good bit of controversy at that time. Uh, then he went to Barbados in 1718, and this proved to be a transformative moment in his life. He had entered, he and his wife Sarah Lay uh, had entered the world's leading slave society, and they saw up close and personal, all of the horrors of slavery, people uh, dying of hunger, people being worked to death, tortures, executions, and being tender-hearted, Benjamin and Sarah Lay were quickly converted into abolitionists. They began to feed the hungry. Uh, they entertained them in their home. Uh, but of course, the crowds of people who flocked to see them grew by such extraordinary numbers, it attracted the uh, the attention of the island's ruling class and Benjamin and Sarah were basically pressured to leave. Uh, back to London, uh, then they immigrated to Philadelphia 1732 and lived in Philadelphia until uh, Sarah actually died in 1735. Benjamin outlived her uh, by quite a number of years. He passed away in 1759. During this time, during the time in Philadelphia especially, he was the leading force trying to convince Quakers to abolish the institution of slavery. One of the most militant opponents of slavery uh, that institution has ever known. Uh, and he did do his best to use shock to force people into a sense of proper ethical behavior. So when you said, Doug, that the book begins by shocking the reader, that's appropriate because that's exactly what Benjamin Lay wanted to do with his fellow Quakers, shock them so that they would think and think hard about what they were doing in owning slaves. That is exactly what it does, and it's one of the key features of the book is his, uh, the way he goes about uh, trying to get his message across. It's time for a break. This is The World of Silence from Ned Roram's A Quaker Reader, performed by Leonard Raver. Stay with us for more Walking the Talk with historian Marcus Redeker about the radical Quaker abolitionist, the fearless Benjamin Lay, when Interchange returns on WFHB.
Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm for Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Walking the Talk, the revolutionary abolitionist Benjamin Lay, and historian Marcus Redeker is our guest. Benjamin Lay was an abolitionist, a muckraker, and a critic of his own community, which, despite being from a radical offshoot of Protestantism, Quakers, were also slave owners. We continue the show diving further into the radical roots of the Quaker movement and how its spiritual egalitarian nature, subversive at the time of the English Revolution, helped make ideological space for the tradition of democracy in America. But members of that community compromised its progressive nature by buying into slavery. We might want to talk about also, before we again get further into into the process here, uh, is try to try to get a historical sense of of what's going on at the time. It's uh, as you say, Benjamin Lay, born in 1681, uh, died in 1759, a long time ago. It's hard for us to have any any real sense of what the world is like, what the geography is like, the landscape, you know, things of this nature are hard to cast ourselves back into. Benjamin Lay himself is someone that's hard to necessarily uh, conceive of or imagine, and um, we'll have to talk about that too. You know, the picture of Benjamin Lay is important also. Uh, so what, uh, I think there's a, I think there's a, um, I think there's a place where you say, uh, maybe in the conclusion of the book, you write that uh, Benjamin Lay was in many ways the last radical of the English Revolution. So what? Let's let's start with that. Maybe what is the English Revolution? If we can, I guess, get a thumbnail of that, and how is how is he kind of a continuator of that? Okay, very good question. The English Revolution was a tremendous upheaval that took place in the 1640s and 1650s when. Uh, royalists supporting King Charles I and parliamentarians led by Oliver Cromwell uh, had a ferocious fight. In fact, it, it was a war. The parliamentarians wanted to reduce the privilege of the monarch. They wanted a somewhat relatively more democratic way of doing things in which the, the, the wealthy men of the realm uh, who were mostly in parliament had more power. Uh, the way this worked out was that parliamentary forces executed King Charles I in 1649 uh, and then began uh, a new kind of experimental government, a kind of republic. But what's very important for our purposes is that when the royal power was severely damaged in the 1640s, one of the things that happened was that censorship broke down. And because censorship broke down, all kinds of radicals who were connected to the parliamentary cause and far to the left of someone like Cromwell rushed into print with solutions of their own to the problems of the day. These groups had very colorful names. They were called the levelers, the diggers, the ranters, the seekers, and crucially, the Quakers. Quakers came out of the 1650s from this radical Protestant milieu. So one of the things that I've argued in the book is that this religious radicalism of the 1640s and 1650s was actually very important to Benjamin Lay, even though he was born some uh, 20 to 25 years after the English Revolution. I might pause and mention that uh, King Charles II, the son of Charles I, was invited back to resume the monarchy 
1660. So the English Revolution came to an end. Uh, and many of the people who had uh, been involved in the execution of King Charles I were themselves executed. Uh, Quakers themselves had been involved, uh, if not in that event, in many other sort of radical actions. So they were quite worried about what might happen to them when the king came back. Mm. And that prompted uh, George Fox to undertake the peace testimony to forsake all violence and war. But anyway, my my point here is that Benjamin Lay was strongly influenced by the very radical early Quakers, especially a man named James Naylor. And he, in a sense, channeled their radicalism into a different age. And let me just give you a couple of examples. Mm -hmm. uh, Quakers in the English Revolution uh, took up the practice of refusing to doff their hats when a person of higher social station encountered him. In other words, it was very common in those days for you know, a, a poor person to defer to a wealthy person and take off the hat as an act of deference. The Quakers refused to do that. Mm -hmm. In fact, one Quaker named John Perot went so far as to say that Quakers shouldn't even take off their hats while praying because God was in all individual Quakers, so what's the point? So they had this very radical practice of, of refusing to do things that were crucial to the way class society operated in England. Mm -hmm. uh, Benjamin Lay continued this practice into the 1710, 1720s, and 1730s. It's frequently complained of in Quaker meetings that he will not take his hat off. This is a direct continuity of this older tradition. But the other thing these early radical Quakers did was they, they engaged in quite extravagant street theater. For example, to emphasize that, the, that divinity was within, what they called the inward light, Quakers would sometimes go out in public and set a Bible on fire to emphasize that this is merely a human creation and that real divinity is within the individual. Hmm. Uh, Lay uh, took a lot of his really extraordinary guerrilla theater, I think, from the early Quakers who had that same desire to shock people into a proper sense of ethical behavior. So by continuing those radical ideas, Benjamin Lay connected the radicals of one era, the middle of the 17th century, to the radicals of the later 18th century by attaching those sorts of uh, very radical views to the issue of slavery. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our guest is Marcus Redeker, author of the new book, The Fearless Benjamin Lay, the Quaker dwarf who became the first revolutionary abolitionist. I do love the levelers, diggers, ranters, and seekers, and Quakers, and I never, I guess I never put Quakers together um, with those other terms, simply because the others don't really, haven't uh, lived on, I suppose, right? So the Quakers became a kind of institutional, religious uh, organization, while the others became uh, kind of a, a story in history, right? Exactly. And, and I think one reason why we don't tend to associate Quakers with that kind of radicalism is that they have evolved into something 
that is quite respectable and middle class. Mm-hmm. Uh, many Quakers are made a little anxious by the very radical origins of their group, but it is extremely important to remember that. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, they're, they were the longest lasting of the radical groups of the English Revolution. Uh, and it's also important that they, along with the others, in many ways represent the origins of modern democracy. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that they insisted on was a more democratic society, a more egalitarian society, and the spiritual egalitarianism of Quakers in particular is going to be very crucial, both to Benjamin Lay and even to the subsequent self-definition of the entire group. Mm. Well, it is kind of a, an important thing to to sort of I guess, point out the religious dimension. In one sense, the, the metaphysical uh, allows us to, to create a, a sense of e- a equality that the visual rejects in some ways, right? So society is built on these sort of visual cues. You talked about hats and, and doffing caps, and, and dress itself is a way in which we decide whether people are of higher station or not. So one of the ways in which this is fascinating is the idea that spiritually uh, we are the same. You know, God shines in all of us kind of aspect of this, right? So that, that in itself is a radical uh, um, leveling perspective. Absolutely is. And I, and I think it's very important to remember this. These, uh, these subversive ideas about the equality of humankind, this was something that elites worked very hard to discredit. And I think this is one of the things that uh, was most important about the English Revolution. It created a, a legacy for later movements, hmm. uh, a more democratic, a more egalitarian legacy. And I would hear uh, Doug like to introduce a Kind of a complicated word okay. called antinomianism. Oh, good. I was about to ask that, so good. Okay, antinomianism. This is not a word that most people are familiar with, but it's really crucial to the English Revolution, and it's crucial to Benjamin Lay. An antinomian, as the etymology of the word suggests, anti meaning against, and nomos basically means authority. Uh, the sign of authority. Mm-hmm. An antinomian was someone who rejected the authority of the day, and he or she, because of their own quality of religious belief and a direct connection to God, thought that they were no longer required to obey the law because they knew what was right. This is, in a sense, an enshrinement of the individual conscience mm-hmm. uh, against the law. And someone like Lay would say, we're not bound to to obey any laws that rich men have made for themselves in order to protect their slave, their slave investment. We're not allowed. We we don't have to obey those laws. We can rise above those. We are going to obey a higher calling. So this higher law doctrine emerges out of antinomianism and will actually become in the 19th century a centerpiece of the abolitionist movement. And Lay himself was antinomian to the bone. Nobody could tell him what to do. He was sure that he was right, and he was absolutely convinced that slavery was evil, must be abolished right now. Very good. Uh, Antinomians, uh, maybe it's a good thing to call uh, call someone like uh, Henry Thoreau an antinomian as well. The the idea that consciousness is is the thing you have to pay attention to, or conscience is the thing you have to pay attention to. 
I think that there's a direct line between the uh, antinomian Quakers and Benjamin Lay to people like Thoreau. I think that's a, a very important trend in the long-term development of radicalism. So one, one question, I guess, uh, that, that I might ask, and this does have to do with, uh, again, trying to paint the picture of Benjamin Lay, because it's a radical picture in itself, right? The, the idea of, the, um, of a man who, who not only uh, is a, a sort of, a, uh, as you say, I think a guerrilla theater activist in many ways and trying to harken back to the time when, when Quakers themselves were more radical than they became, um, is also um, someone who is visually arresting to people. Part of what is uh, fascinating about Benjamin Lay is his own his own physical stature, right? And you can tell us about that in a uh, uh, in a second. But also, my question would be if that physical stature itself, uh, in some ways, while we might say created. Um, uh, an, an exile, you know, a sort of uh, an exile outside of regular culture, but in some ways if it protected him, allowed him to say the things he did uh, in ways that maybe other men at the time would not have, like it wouldn't have been stood for. Uh, that there's something about the, the stature of Lay himself that kind of protected him. You know, Doug, I'm really glad that we spent uh, a good few minutes talking about Benjamin Lay before we came to the fact that he's a dwarf. Me too. He was a dwarf. He was also a hunchback. He was a little over four feet tall. And uh, there is no question that his life as a little person affected his politics, uh, but it also affected his guerrilla theater. So here's what I would say about that. First of all, I think that Benjamin suffered a great deal of scorn and persecution. He was mocked, laughed at, denigrated, uh, not only because he held these very radical ideas against slavery, but because he was a little person. Mm -hmm. He suffered for that. But I think the crucial thing about uh, his, living his life uh, in that way is that I do believe that his experience as a dwarf increased his empathy for other people who suffered some kind of oppression. Uh, he, he had, when he went to Barbados, he was so full of fellow feeling for these Africans who were being tortured, uh, who, who were dying. He befriended people. He was very moved by this. Part of Lay's empathy uh, grew from the fact that he'd been a sailor for all those years, uh, where he had really imbibed this ethic of solidarity. Sailors worked in a dangerous environment, so he had a very strong sense of solidarity. Part of it was the Quaker ethic of spiritual egalitarianism, but part of it, I think, was Benjamin's own experience and the way in which he identified with those who, who suffered. Hmm. So his, his stature as a little person is definitely a significant part of his story. Now, we don't have a lot of evidence about this, Doug. I have to say that. Uh, Benjamin only once comments on the fact that he was a dwarf because someone wrote in Benjamin Franklin's newspaper, the Pennsylvania Gazette, a sort of nasty comment making fun of Benjamin for being short and uh, uh, twisted of body, as it said. He, he was also a hunchback. Benjamin's response to that was to say, uh, look, we have the bodies we have. There's nothing we can do, but 
we are accountable for the ideas we hold and we are accountable for how we behave. So let's talk about that. So you can see that his investment was as a person of ideas. Mm -hmm. It was common in the English Revolution that radicals who performed street theater would use personal eccentricities in order to capture people's appearance. We don't know for sure if that was Benjamin's motive or not, but we know that he certainly did capture people's attention. Uh, in fact, Benjamin Rush, a very famous physician who signed the Declaration of Independence, uh, once noted that because Benjamin Lay performed these acts of guerrilla theater, he was probably the best-known person in all of Pennsylvania at that time. It's time for another break. This is Ned Roram's bewitching attire of the most charming simplicity, off of his 1976 composition, A Quaker Reader. Stay with us for more on the fearless Benjamin Lay with guest Marcus Redeker when Interchange returns. Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm, and you're listening to Interchange. Benjamin Lay, the Quaker dwarf who became the first revolutionary abolitionist, is our subject, and historian Marcus Redeker is our guest. Benjamin Lay challenged his community, attempting to shock them and shame them out of tolerating the morally intolerable, reigniting the latent radicalism in the Quaker community, and also setting an example for conscience-following radicals like Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau, to come. As a dwarf, it seems Lay identified with all beings cast outside the accepted social norms. Recognizing the human capacity to rationalize torture and slavery as justified for those who were inferior to the so-called master class and master race. We 
Well, you mentioned Pennsylvania there, and let's let's jump across the pond, I suppose, right? Uh, it's important that, obviously, uh, Benjamin Lay is English. Uh, he comes out of a, um, the English Revolution, as you say, the tradition of uh, class levelers in many ways. Um, and I guess first I'd ask why... Why Quakers? Let me let me first ask why Quaker. Like why he was he born into a Quaker household? Did Quakerism matter to him? It's an interesting thing to to want to in some ways reform a group that you belong to, while at the same time, um, I, I somewhat don't understand group organizations that that are about inner light in some ways, right? Why why this group matters over other groups to someone like Benjamin Lay? Why did Quakerism, why did the Quakers matter to Lay? Well, Lay was born into a, a, a Quaker family. His grandparents were Quakers. They had probably converted uh, during the latter stages of the English Revolution, probably around 1655. Uh, his parents were Quakers. There was a significant Quaker community in the part of Essex where he was born and grew up. So he did inherit the faith, mm -hmm. but it does seem pretty clear that Benjamin was much more devout and much more radical than anybody else in his family had ever been. Now, part of this, I think, would have been because he was a dwarf. Mm -hmm. He loved the Quaker community because of their emphasis on the fact that all people were equal in the eyes of God. So he had an ethic of egalitarianism, and he was always wanting to hold them to it. Mm. Now, that is itself very important, and the way the uh, the Quaker community evolved over time is very important. This latent radicalism of the early days is kind of always there, even though the Quakers became, many of them, not revolutionary. They became a quite orderly and uh, normal religious group. But that latent tendency of radicalism is there, and that, I think, is what keeps getting ignited the first Quaker protest against slavery was made in 1688 in Germantown, Pennsylvania. And what we find is that this radical uh, critique of slavery by Quakers will, will increase in the early 18th century. Uh, a man named Ralph Sanford plays an important part in writing an anti-slavery book in 1729. And then when Lay arrives in 1732, he takes it up to another level altogether, a level of provocation. Hmm. So I think what happens in the long term is that the Quakers become the first group to outlaw slavery in their midst. Now, it takes a very long time. You, you, you begin with that protest in 1688. The Quakers do not outlaw slavery till 1776. So when you consider that the first protest is made in 1688, uh, it was a very long and complicated debate. Now, Lay played a crucial uh, role in this because during the 1730s and 1740s, we now know that's the period when the point of view is changing. Many, many Quakers are coming to oppose slavery, although there still is a slave-owning elite uh, in some measure of control. But the Quakers themselves do play a very important historic role in abolishing slavery. Uh, they're not only the first group to do it, but they strongly influenced the British abolitionists, which rises in the 1780s and 1790s. So we, we do have to give a lot of credit to Quakers as a group. 
But more specifically, we have to give credit to these radical Quakers like Benjamin Lay, who pushed the issue at every conceivable moment. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our guest is Marcus Redeker, author of the new book, The Fearless Benjamin Lay, the Quaker dwarf who became the first revolutionary abolitionist. So uh, one of the issues, obviously, is that, uh, and maybe, again, people don't quite understand the history of slavery very well. We tend to, in this, in this country, make it a, uh, a sort of a dichotomous view, like there's the North and there's the South, and that's what slavery is all about. Um, and here, uh, you know, we're, 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 cent- we're centered here in this story in Pennsylvania. So maybe uh, also give us a sense of how widespread slavery was and, and, and the way in which uh, it kind of morphed into this, this North versus South for us. When Benjamin Lay arrived in Pennsylvania, he came into a world in which slavery was almost universally accepted by people of European descent. Of course, it was vigorously opposed by people of African descent uh, who resisted in almost every way imaginable. But slavery was uh, an institution which had power in many different parts of the American colonies. Now, it's true that with tobacco uh, and rice in the American South and sugar in the Caribbean, those are the main crops uh, and the plantation system grows up around them with very large numbers of Africans uh, working to produce these commodities for the world market. But it's also true that slavery was used in a great many other kinds of production. Uh, artisans in New York owned a lot of slaves. Uh, in the, around 1740, around the time uh, Benjamin was active in Pennsylvania, about 20% of the population of New York City were enslaved Africans. Hmm. So this is not just a regional thing. Uh, slavery is uh, a powerful institution in a very broad sense. Uh, it is true that it will develop its greatest power in the American South, but it is not true that slavery is strictly a Southern matter. Mm. It is, uh, yeah, it becomes very clear in this particular book as well, and it's uh, uh, another key issue or a key point that, that I think it's worth uh, pointing out and why I think your book, uh, beyond being fascinating in itself, also is a, a great book uh, that does a service to trying to help us understand uh, just how deeply this particular issue is, just how deeply the country is uh, was born and created and much of its ethos, uh, you know, much of its uh, commerce, everything about it is kind of centered in the slave trade. I think that it's uh, one of the most widely accepted views among American historians now that slavery is absolutely central to our history, north and south, Mm -hmm. from very early in the 17th century through the Civil War and even beyond. So it's it's really a critical point. Uh, Slavery was something that mattered hugely to northern industrialization. Mm -hmm. Cotton was the commodity that fed the textile factories in places like Rhode Island. So we we cannot separate slavery out by region. We have to see it as something that's crucial. And what's 
what's also therefore important is that we have to see abolitionism as a movement that had to fight on many fronts at the same time. Mm-hmm. In other words, Benjamin Lay had to fight his fellow Quakers. Uh, now, John Woolman and some others, they went down south and, and talked to southern uh, Quaker slave owners down there. So this was actually a, a regional effort. Uh, but it, its its success depended really on engaging slavery everywhere it existed, uh, north and south. Hmm. It's time for our final break. Here's another from Ned Rorum's The Quaker Reader. This is One Sigh Rightly Begotten. More on the fearless Benjamin Lay when Interchange returns. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Marcus Redeker, author of The Fearless Benjamin Lay, is our guest. Benjamin Lay, a fierce abolitionist, firmly believed that money was the root of all evil. Industrial slavery was only one example of this corrupting desire for wealth. He recognized, long before Marx and Engels, that the market disguises exploitation. The cube of sugar also contains the blood of the enslaved laborers who produce it. Well, uh, another another thing to stress here, again, going back to your, your perspective or uh, a lace perspective as uh, a dwarf or little person and being an, an outsider in his physical person as well and, and that kind of um, empathy that uh, to all people um, born of one's own difficulties is important here. I think also the, um, the suggestion, I, I think that, um, and this is Lay's too, uh, that that these are institutions born of uh, commerce, right? Born of wealth, born of this sort of new new world of of money that is, in a sense, in a kind of way, an egalitarian growth of money, right? In some sense, there's this idea that this is a that this is a beginning of the a real market economy, where, which opened up uh, wealth accumulation to to 
to more than just uh, aristocratic elites, right? So there's this kind of grasping world of, of wealth accumulation that he's struggling against as well. Absolutely true, Doug. Benjamin Lay saw slavery as a result of human greed, human avarice. He used the word covetousness. He thought this was destroying Quakerism, and he thought it was also destroying the entire society. So what's really fascinating about Lay, and this is one of the things that makes him a revolutionary abolitionist, is that he had a critique not only of slavery, but of the market economy. Now, his critique of that was actually lived out. In other words, he didn't simply write down ideas about what was wrong with slavery or what was wrong with this new world of capitalism. Benjamin Lay didn't simply write his ideas in, in a book. Uh, he lived them in his personal life. And let me give you some examples. Benjamin believed that human beings should live without exploiting other human beings and without exploiting animals. Therefore, he refused to consume any commodity that had been produced by slave labor. Uh, he was the first person to do this. This will later become a key tactic in the struggle against slavery, the boycott of sugar, for example. He saw this first, and what he saw was the commodity disguises the conditions under which it was created. Mm -hmm. In other words, you take a, a cube of sugar and drop it in your tea, unless you think, as Benjamin Lay urged people to do, you don't know that that sugar was made with the blood of enslaved people. So he had this idea that the market actually disguised human oppression. I think this is actually still true today. And I think this is one of the points of the anti-sweatshop movement, mm -hmm. to people to be conscious of the conditions of in factories in Indonesia or Vietnam uh, and how their expensive shoes, running shoes, are manufactured. Benjamin Lay had this same idea 250 years ago. Mm -hmm. But to go back to how he lived it, he made his own food, produced his own food, he also made his own clothes, and when he made them, he made them out of flax rather than wool, because wool involved shearing wool was violence against sheep. He uh, he he got the flax. He would spin it himself. He would weave it. This was his commitment to living outside that market economy. Hmm. He was not going to participate in the oppression that came with that way of generating wealth. He rejected this kind of thing uh, straightforwardly, and he provided an example of how people could live if they shared those ideals. Hmm. That's great. Uh, and, you know, he's a great example, as you say, of a revolutionary, right? And, and one of the things we get caught in here and we continue to be sort of stuck in and how, how our, our particular economy, our particular way of living uh, confuses us sometimes is that we live in a reformist atmosphere for the most part, right? So revolution is, this is the thing that has to change now because it is obviously wrong for these obvious reasons. And if we don't stop it now then we are, in a sense, condemning ourselves to this, this hell we're creating, and we're a part of the hell. We experience the hell as well. The reform 
accepts the culture as is, accepts the thing as is, and seeks these little little changes that, as you say, kind of create a, a cosmetic change uh, while still kind of keeping within it the exploitation, the manipulation, uh, the hiddenness of that, of that fact. So Lay, not a reformer uh, like, like Rush, perhaps, but uh, a revolutionary. No, that's very well said. And I think that describes Benjamin Lay uh, very clearly. He, he rejected a world governed by money. Uh, he actually talked about this in, um, in some marginal comments he made uh, in one of his books, that money destroys society. And we really must imagine an entirely new way of living. Now, the fact that he lived this way, uh, he, was, he was unusual in this regard, although there were, were other cave dwellers uh, in Pennsylvania at that time. But he did capture the imagination of a lot of people who came to his cave to visit him and engage in philosophical debate with him. Uh, Benjamin Franklin came. Uh, Richard Penn, the governor of Pennsylvania, came. Uh, Lay always had an ability to command the uh, attention of powerful people. Now, part of this is because he was a brilliant conversationalist. Mm. He was extremely uh, sharp and witty uh, and very challenging so that people would actually go to see him just because they knew that they would be in for sort of some, some verbal fireworks. But the other reason people went to see him was because they wanted to see exactly how does someone live outside the world of money? How do you do it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he provided an example for that. And that, I think, is one of the things that led to people telling so many stories about him mm-hmm. uh, and just how very revolutionary he was. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our guest is Marcus Redeker, author of the new book, The Fearless Benjamin Lay, the Quaker dwarf who became the first revolutionary abolitionist. Well, uh, we, we shouldn't get away before we talk about two things in particular. One is book, obviously, that you talk about and, and quote from throughout, uh, All Slave Keepers Apostates, and that's a, a shortened title. Um, but also that Benjamin Franklin uh, published this, printed this book uh, without, I guess, anonymously as well. So we, I guess we could talk about that and why, uh, why old, old Benjamin Franklin was, uh, was afraid of, of being tied to this particular book. But tell us a little bit about that, uh, that book, uh, All Slave Keepers Apostates. That book, uh, Benjamin Lay, published in 1738, it is a, a very strange book in the sense that it's, it doesn't obey the conventions of normal book writing of that time. Now, this, of course, the same fact makes it of special interest to a historian. But what the book contains is a very learned biblical exegesis uh, using uh, religious arguments against slavery that he's found in different parts of the Bible. It also includes uh, autobiography. He talks about his life as a sailor. He talks about his time in Barbados. And he also talks at length about his struggles within the Quaker community of trying to get his fellow Quakers to uh, recognize that slavery must be abolished. 
it's the last point of these that made Benjamin Franklin very nervous about publishing the book because these Quakers were, were the richest and most powerful people in the entire colony of Pennsylvania. So Franklin knew that this book was going to cause a big ruckus. So when he finally published it, he discreetly left his own name off the title page. It would normally say at the bottom, published by Benjamin Franklin for the author, uh, 1738. But this one is missing Benjamin Franklin's name. <laughs> he, uh, he decided he was going to try to hide who printed the book. <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, it's one of those uh, little little pieces of uh, knowledge, information about about these great men, right? The, that that helps you understand a little bit that they're people, <laughs> right? That's right. Let me add one more thing about Benjamin Franklin. Later in his life, uh, he actually uh, was proud that he had published Benjamin Lay's book. So. By the time we get to uh, the later 18th century, he's telling people that he had published this book. And we also owe it to Franklin that we have this surviving oil portrait of Benjamin Lay. Hmm. Benj uh, Benjamin Franklin's wife, Deborah, uh, apparently commissioned a local artist, William Williams, to paint a portrait of Lay as a gift for Benjamin Franklin. This was painted probably in the year or so before Benjamin Lay died. I, I think he was probably a keepsake. Uh, of a person that Franklin respected, uh, and really a person who by that time had become quite historic because it was clear that the Quakers were on their way to abolition. So uh, let me just close with this. You wrote a New York Times Sunday Review piece, and you closed it this way. In his time, Lay may have been the most radical person on the planet. He helps us to understand what was politically and morally possible in the first half of the 18th century and what may be possible now. It is more than we think. Um, thinking being the key issue there, I think, at this, at this point, Marcus, uh, one of the difficult parts of, of life now is how we're uh, more and more encouraged not to think. You know, we're more and more encouraged to, to be on your iPhone or, or look at your Facebook account or Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat, you name it. There's something to distract us. And further and further, we get away from really being able to look at how the world is created around us. Look at the institutions, look at the industries, look at the damages being done. Uh, hopefully, uh, your book, Benjamin Lay, The Fearless Benjamin Lay, can help us do those things. You know, take a look and, and decide a principled stance on what is right and wrong. I think uh, this, is, this is exactly why I wrote the book, Doug, uh, to provide a powerful example of someone who engaged in deep thought and reflection about the nature of the society that he lived in. Uh, he sought out uh, solitude uh, in order to be able to do this. He was very physically active. He engaged in all kinds of protests, as we have already discussed. But he also believed that people really had to think. They had to think about what kind of world they really want to live in. And Benjamin Lay wanted to live in a world without violence, he wanted to live in a world without uh, exploitation and oppression, and he basically uh, constructed that life in miniature for himself. Hmm. Uh, now, his example, I hope, will be an inspiration to us yeah. as we think about what kind of future we want. You know, the past is past, but the future is wide open, right. and it really depends on collective decision-making. I, I feel that someone like Lay can, can really help us to see that other worlds are possible.
that's our show. We'll close with a final song from Ned Roram's A Quaker Reader. This is Ocean of Light. Thanks to Marcus Redeker for joining us today and giving us a very inspiring history lesson. And a big thanks, post-Fall Fun Drive, to all of you out there who support Interchange with the money that makes its broadcast possible. And thanks for listening. You can find this show and more like it for downloading at wfhb.org news slash interchange. Next week, we begin a series of biographical programs on the leaders of the Russian Revolution and what would become the Soviet Union. We'll start with Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, better known to history as Lenin. Lars Lee will be our guest. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon. Our studio engineer is Bryce Martin. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.